Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. With respect to the economy, Alan Greenspan has argued that the essence of American capitalism is creative destruction, that our tolerance for change, for the new, for being willing to replace incumbents, even while painful, is the essence of what has moved the U.S. to become in a mere 400 years the most powerful economic engine on the planet. However, with respect to our governance, we have not been as tolerant or as flexible. We have clung to ideas and systems that have changed only under the most dire circumstances. The Civil War changed us, but not entirely. The Great Depression changed us, but again, not entirely. Just listen to Mitch McConnell last week looking to shred the Roosevelt social safety net. As for the present, Donald Trump did not deliver the problems we face today. He merely exploited them, just as demagogues usually do. And so we once again face a huge disconnect between the reality of the world we live in, a world of global integration, social and economic dislocation and division, siloed and self-reinforcing news and information, and a governmental system unattuned and unresponsive that can't help itself from leaving whole groups behind. The result is perhaps one of the great existential crises we face as a country. How we handle it may very well determine the fate of the republic. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Ben Fountain. Ben Fountain is the author of several award-winning works, including Brief Encounters with Che Guevara and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. He's written numerous essays and columns for The Guardian, including a series during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And his latest work is Beautiful Country Burn Again, Democracy, Rebellion, and Revolution. Ben Fountain, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you very much for having me. A delight to have you here. You got to watch the 2016 campaign really up close and personal from the cold snows of Iowa right on through the election. Talk a little bit about how you covered it, what you experienced during that period. Well, I mean, I think like most Americans, I was bewildered, confused, angry, frustrated, occasionally joyful. Um, but, you know, I was I was trying to find some answers um, if, you know, just for my own head, for my own peace of mind and maybe even sanity. Um, I think it was very important for me to be out on the campaign trail, but just as important, at least to me, were the times when I would come home and I would do what I call study. I would sit down at my desk and I would read and, and um, absorb and process and try to make things of sense of the things I'd seen on the campaign trail. And as you started to do that, talk about some of the themes that began to emerge for you as you got to watch this unfold. And it was clear that that it was not a normal campaign, that something else was going on here, not just in the form of the candidates, but in the way in which the public was, was responding to it. Well, Trump, uh, whatever you think about Trump, I think um, it, has to be, it has to be acknowledged that he was speaking a powerful truth during the campaign. And that truth was the system is rigged. And that rang true for millions and millions of Americans for the simple fact that, you know, that is the case. Working people in this country have been screwed the last 35 to 40 years. And um, Trump was speaking to that. So I think you, 
a lot of economic anxiety and, and frustration were coming to a head in 2016, and it had been building for a long time. And Trump spoke to that in a very authentic way. What um, I mean, he also coupled that with you know what's come to be known as the Southern strategy, um, you know, very thinly veiled appeals to the deep-seated xenophobia and racism. Um, built into American politics. Was he really addressing it, though, in an authentic way or an exploitive way? I, I would argue very strongly an exploitive way. Um, he was he he spoke, you know, very bluntly and very colorfully um, about the system being rigged and how working people had gotten a shaft um, in this country, but. Uh, I mean, even the most basic analysis of his program would show he was offering nothing, nothing coherent, um, nothing concrete or coherent in terms of policies that would actually benefit working people. And for an example, I mean, all you have to do is look at his position on raising the minimum wage, which um, it was incoherent. He would spin from one thing to another from one day to, to the next. And so... Um, I mean, you know, just a, a, a very modest exercise of intelligence would have shown that um, while he was speaking to, you know, the anxieties and, and the frustrations of a lot of Americans, he wasn't offering any real solutions. And yet you write about the fact that people would come out of these gymnasiums, would come out of these Trump rallies and be happy about it in ways that was somehow different than you witnessed with other politicians? Jeff, it was an extraordinary thing to see the connection Trump forged with his audiences. Um, he is a political phenomenon. He has this, this raw talent for connecting with people um, in this very fundamental way. And, and yeah, I mean, he made people happy. They came out of the out of the gyms and the rallies and and uh, with big smiles on their faces and uh um it, you know, that power, that political power has to be acknowledged. And the people that were in those rallies, the people that were coming out happy, what what could you sense about them? I mean, arguably, you know, some would say that they're part of, you know, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables. Uh, you know, there were people from all walks of life. The rallies I went to, there was a broad cross-section of people. Um, let me add, of white people. Um, I very rarely saw people of color at those rallies. Um, so I think he was, you know, he was appealing to a broad swath of the American public, and um, and that was certainly borne out in the numbers on election day. He um, he won a majority of white Americans' vote across the economic spectrum. And that is one of the more interesting aspects of it, because it really goes beyond just the people that were, have been left behind by economic change and economic dislocation and globalization and various other economic indicators, that, that these people really were a broad spectrum. Right. It, it wasn't, you know, simply the working poor or, or people in coal country who had been left behind by, 
you know, the way the economy has gone the last 35 years. Um, you know, it was these these were very prosperous looking um, middle class Americans, upper middle class. Um, but again, the common denominator was whiteness. Um, and, uh, you know, I think white supremacy has a strong grip, a very powerful grip in this country. And not only is it identity politics, it's, it's also economic politics. Um, white supremacy has, has allowed white people to prosper uh, very much at the expense of people of color. And, uh, and I think there's an instinct working in American politics where, um, you know, a critical mass of whites in this country feel threatened, um, not only psychologically but economically, um, by any, any, you know, advances made by people of color. One of the odd things about this election, about Trump's election— and, and and I find this to be the case even two years out from it, that there are still 8 million people that voted for Obama twice and voted for Donald Trump. Well, Obama was elected as a transformational candidate. He governed as a transactional candidate. I can't remember where I read that, but that's not original to me. But I think it's true. Um, the fundamental power structure in this country was the same in 2017 when Obama left office as it was when he took office in 2009. There were some incremental gains, and certainly the Affordable Care Act was a huge advance for working people in this country, beleaguered um, though it is and was. But uh, the fundamental power structure had not changed, and um, and I think a lot of people were sensing that. And I mean, I guess the question is whether people that went to those rallies, people that voted for Trump, wanted to see a change in the fundamental power structure of the country. And were they able to really articulate what kind of change they wanted to see? They definitely wanted change um, as far as articulating the kind of change they wanted to see. Um, I think that got bound up in, in attacks on political correctness, um, and uh, which, you know, that's a grab bag of all kinds of things, cultural cues, economic cues, um, and, uh, and, you know, basically inarticulate, except for zeroing in on political correctness and, um, and the alleged proponents of political correctness, you know, professors, hypersensitive undergrads, um, you know, just all the elites who supposedly had been telling working people how they should behave the last 35 or 40 years in the country. So I would say pretty inarticulate and, and um, not much analysis going on there, mostly raw emotion bound up in the, in the phrase political correctness. There's also a sense of wanting to go back to a simpler time, whether that time was 1950 or whatever it might be for individuals, but somehow wanting to go back to when things were, were different for them, simpler for them. Well, yeah, you know, which was bound up in the phrase, make America great again. 
Um, but with reference to what era, when you say again, and um, I think Trump was providing the answer pretty cr- clearly, um, and and at times explicitly, he would talk about um, the 1940s and the 1950s, and uh, when um, you know cops were respected, and um, and you know white people ruled the roost. I mean, make America great again for whom? The 1950s were not a great time. I mean, obviously, you know, the uh, you know to understate it grossly, they were not a great time for people of color in this country or Native Americans or, you know, the poor, the working poor. So, um, uh, you know, this mythical, simpler, better past. Well, probably for su- certain segments of society, it was simpler. And it was better in the sense that um, certain segments of society had clear advantages over other segments at their adva- at you know at their expense. Was there a sense among the people that that supported Trump that went to those rallies, particularly during the campaign? Was there a sense that that the stuff that he was talking about was unrealistic, not relevant? lies in many cases, or were they just so happy to hear it that it didn't matter? He was speaking to emotion. Um, I think, for the most part, raw emotion. And um, it was very satisfying for his supporters to you know, hear him attack certain groups and certain people. And, um, and I think for many of those people, that was enough. Um, you know, as far as offering specific solutions um, or saying things that that they didn't believe in or didn't agree with, the answer you would get was, well, he doesn't really mean that. Or, um, or he, you know, he's just saying that, you know, to, um, to, to get attention or, or draw support. I mean, so there was a lot of selectivity going on there, as far as I could tell. Um, People heard what they wanted to hear, and to the extent they were hearing things that troubled them or they didn't agree with, they they could dismiss. You make the case that that we are at a critical turning point as a result of all of this. That that it's it is an existential crisis for the country, and one that is somewhat unique. Yeah, um, I think. Um, I mean, the two previous reinventions of American society, um, which, you know, they were brought about by the existential crises of slavery and the Civil War in the first instance, and um, the Great Depression and, um, and the economic and political turmoil that came from that. And, um, and, you know, you could view both of those existential crises as having, having – extreme inequality at their core. Obviously, slavery is the most extreme form of inequality we can imagine. Um, and in the Great Depression, um, you know, industrial capitalism had, had placed you know, millions of Americans in a form of de facto servitude, economic servitude. And, and so we look at our own time today and we look at the vast inequality um, in our society uh, economic inequality, and political inequality, too. The vast concentrations of wealth in this country have rendered 
you know, working people in this country, for the most part, second-class citizens. And um, I do not think you can have an arguably genuine constitutional democracy over the long term with these levels of inequality. So something is going to have to give. One can argue that the, the system of constitutional democracy, that the inherent parts of that system are simply not functional within the reality of the economic system and the global system that we have today. Well, I would argue it a different way. Um, I think the the middle 50 or 60 years of the 20th century proved that democracy was in fact capable of dealing with the problems and challenges of industrial capitalism. Um, there was broad prosperity in the country, and uh, the wealthy people in this country prospered um, as well as working people in this country. Um, I think what we've lost are the mechanisms that allow for that prosperity, what economists call the mixed economy. And there are three parts to the mixed economy. Um, a robust private sector with free market, you know, capitalism and enterprise. The second is, is you know, vigorous, effective, smart government to restrain the more predatory aspects of, of capitalism. And the third is a strong um, Strong, strong labor unions and collective bargaining so that working people in this country can get their fair share of the productivity they're producing. Um, that mixed economy has gradually been deconstructed um, since Reagan's election. Um, we have been moving more and more towards, you know, pure free market economy. Um, and so now I think, you know, there's an understanding in society, and I think it's wrong, that the arbiter of what's good and just in society is no longer representative government, which is what the Founding Fathers envisioned, but now it's free markets. The market determines what's good and just and right and productive for society. And uh, I think that goes against the American grain and the American system of government. To some extent, though, that worked more effectively within an industrial framework, and as we move further and further away from that industrial economy into one that is an information economy, a service economy, more of a freelance economy, etc., that it makes recapturing that as difficult as Donald Trump saying, make America great again. There is no question that there are tremendous challenges We've got to be smart. We've got to figure out how to get the best of both worlds. I mean, I mean, you know, economics, it's, it's a force of nature. And, you know, autom automation and, and robotics and, and, you know, the increasing, you know, power of technology in this society, um, we, we, the people and our leaders are going to have to be creative and smart to figure out how to make that economics work alongside, um, you know, real democracy, real representative government. But I think we're doing ourselves a tremendous disservice um, by throwing in the towel and saying, well, the markets are all powerful 
and we are we are giving up on genuine representative government. I think um, I don't think America can thrive and prosper over the long term in a society like that. Does it take, and this comes back to, to your journey in 2016 and, and the people that you covered and the, the politicians that you covered, does it take, will it take the right kind of individual, the right kind of charismatic leader to make that case as opposed to it being just systemic? Uh, I think that's a really important point. Um I thought Obama might have been that person, um, but as it turned out, he was, um, you know, he was a transactional sort of president. Uh, I think he and the Democrats, Democrats for a long time, have done a very poor job of articulating, um, you know, the need for representative government and the need for a mixed economy. And uh, I think that... um, the current political opposition of this country is going to have to do a much better job of of articulating what made us prosperous through you know the 50 or 60 middle years of the 20th century um, you know i'm starting to see people who are saying that um, alexandria ocasio cortez and candidates like her beto o'rourke here in texas certainly bernie sanders was um, articulating that in a very forceful way and, uh, and, you know, movements take time. Um, one election is really, you know, just a blip in terms of the national life. And um, you look at women's suffrage, civil rights, the labor movement, all of these things took decades and decades, if not longer. And um, so, for, so for Democrats to state their case and make it stick, that's a long-term effort. I mean, I guess the the other side of that is the damage that gets done in the meantime, and that while movements traditionally have taken a long time, we live in a world that's on hyperspeed right now, in which things move much faster than they did, and in which people are much more siloed to confirmation bias of only what it is they believe already, which makes the whole process so much harder makes it very much harder and and the stakes are you're right they're on a faster clock now i mean do we have 15 or 20 years for you know the political opposition to you know big oil and and you know big corporate interests do we have 20 years for that opposition to you know start to make it its its case, you know, known and favored by the American people. Will it be too late by then in terms of ecological destruction that's going to be done in the meantime? I think there's a strong argument that it will be too late. Um, And, you know, in terms of people living in their own realities, their own worlds, you know, their own silos, as you put it, yeah, that's a real problem. And, um, you know, the candidates who are going to break through are going to have to speak to that problem, um, you know, in a very direct way. Uh, you know, the world is complex, complicated. There are um, lots of interests, you know, particular interests out there. And if we're going to make it, we have to start thinking in terms of common cause and collective effort and looking beyond our own realities to our shared reality. 
I think the effective candidate or candidates, if they're out there, they're going to have to start speaking to that in a very direct way. And and finally, Ben, do you think that the country is more divided now than it was when you started this journey early on in 2016? Sadly, yes. It's the nature of our trajectory in politics right now that that's happening. And, you know, there was this thing um, in American life called the Fairness Doctrine um, that was dismantled by the Reagan administration in the early 1980s. But um, with the abolition of the Fairness Doctrine, um, media was able to, you know, become, you know, highly partisan and one-sided in this country, and, and shortly after that dismantling, you saw the rise of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and, and, um, and you know, on the other side, MSNBC in later years. And, um, you know, I don't see the Fairness Doctrine coming back anytime soon, so we the people are going to have to, you know, exert our own intelligence, our own integrity, um, and start thinking outside, you know, our small channels, our small lanes, and and thinking in bigger terms. Ben Fountain, his book is Beautiful Country, Burn Again, Democracy, Rebellion, and Revolution. Ben, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.